Welcome to Pastor's Class, a Bible study program brought to you by Tim Say Ministries and Crossover Church. We pray this podcast will help enrich and strengthen your walk with Jesus Christ, and that it will lead you to read and study the scriptures more often. For more information about Tim Say Ministries and Crossover Church, please visit www.crossoverchurch.tv or give us a call at 301-927-5620. Tonight we're beginning a series of messages as we walk verse by verse through the book of James. And this this series is entitled Faith in Motion. I want to read my introduction to this book. It says, the book of James provides us a picture of faith that reveals itself not by the quantity of things we possess, but by the quality of people we become. To be a man or woman of God and of faith, we will discover that faith is not only seen in what it gets us, but what it gets us to do. Faith must first change us before it can change our circumstances. As we look into this book, it begins this way. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Well, we see that the first thing we encounter in this book is a name, James. And among the four people who bear the name James in the New Testament, this James is James, the brother of Jesus. And we should say the half-brother of Jesus. <laughs> Amen? Let's, let's understand there was only one virgin birth. But James here, as we discover, is that James did not believe in Jesus until the resurrection. And it accounts that although he was his brother, he did not believe in him. And, and Jesus knows what it's like to have family members who are in proximity to us, who hear our witness, who see our lifestyle, and yet don't come into the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus did not give up on James. We are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that after his resurrection, he appeared to numerous people, but he appeared to James. Amen? Anybody got a person in your family that, that doesn't know the Lord, that you're believing God to save? That, that you just believe in God to touch, despite their maybe weeks, months, years of resistance, that God can still get, get to them and God can still turn them around. I got people I pray for almost every day, very close. I'm believing for God to save them. If that's you, just raise your hand for a moment. I'm going to just pray, and that's you just pray over that person. Father, right now, we're believing, dear God, that you will save that brother, that sister, that relative, that cousin, whoever, dear God, that, that parent, that child, dear God. We're praying right now. We don't want to give up. Jesus is our model. We will not give up. We're going to believe that they will come into the kingdom in Jesus' name. Well, James comes into the kingdom, and James becomes a central figure in the church of Jerusalem. James becomes that cornerstone, and in essence, he, he becomes that figure in, in the church of Jerusalem that when issues break out, they come to James to have them resolved. So you see this contrast from not believing in Jesus to coming to a place where he becomes a central voice in the church. 
And so we see that James now, over time, we see he's developed a spiritual bio, and he's come to a place, and, and, and amidst all of his progress, his press release, if you will, look how he identifies himself. James, look at this, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bondservant. When he says a bondservant, it's the Greek word doulos. It means slave. Not, not a free person, not a hired person, but a person who is a slave, a doulos. And so he's saying here that although Jesus was my brother in the flesh, my authority and my capacity to speak these truths to you are not based upon a sibling relationship because he's more than just my brother in the flesh. He's my Lord. He's my king. He is my master. And so James says, I can speak under the authority of the one who is my master. I think it speaks to us that we should never become too familiar with God. Even though we've been walking with him for years and what a friend we have in Jesus. That we should never take for granted that he's still our king, our Lord, our master. That we are indeed tied and connected to him, but yet we are his doulos. We are the property of God. James here says something that indeed is challenging because he would begin to say something that is radically different than the mindset of the culture of that day. But let me just before I get there, James says to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. Now it would appear that James, when he says the 12 tribes, is writing to the nation of Israel. But that's not right because James is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. And so he's writing to those who are the new Israel of God, those who've been born not of the flesh but of the spirit into the kingdom. I want you to take a moment. Turn to Romans chapter 2, the book of Romans, chapter 2, starting at verse 28. If you're there, say amen. Well, you are, are you really there? <laughs> Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise comes not from men, but from God. He says, this is what constitutes the people of God, not what happens as a part of their lineage, their culture, but the work of the Spirit in their hearts. And so he's writing to the saints of God. He's writing to the church. And he says something in this context that indeed is antithetical to the mindset of that day. He says something that is antithetical to the mindset of this day. He says something that is challenging and out of the norm for many Christians. He says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, one translation says, and I believe it's Philip's translation that says this, it says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your life, my brothers, 
Don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Now ask somebody, okay, when was the last time you did that? That when trials came into your life, you received them with joy as a good friend coming to visit you. Okay, let me explain something. Mmm is not a man. <laughs> that we welcome these trials not as intruders, not as outside forces that are against us, but indeed they are friends in which we should welcome. You know that was challenging for the saints in that day. It's challenging for us today. Now I get a response. <laughs> and it's in this that we have to ask James, are you serious? I mean, what are you saying? Are you calling us to be spiritual pretenders? To put a smile, a grin on a broken heart? Uh, what are you saying to us, James? Because even the Stoics came to a place that they, they just shut off their emotions. That when things were hard, they didn't show any emotions. When things were good, they didn't show any emotions. But you are saying to us that in the face of a trial and difficult challenge, that we are to consider it all joy. We are to welcome it as a friend, not as an intruder. We are to celebrate in the midst of the trial. Okay, James. Now, now, when you look at this, let's, let's stop for a moment. Because you need to understand there are two kinds of trials, fundamentally for the child of God. There are disciplinary trials. These are the trials that come your way because God is correcting something in your life. I mean, you should know what these trials look like because you know you have veered away from the will of God and you've opened a door for correction. And the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You ever been disciplined by God? Did you know it was God, right? God loves you so much. God doesn't have a timeout system. God will discipline you. He will begin to allow trials and circumstances to come to begin to bring you back in alignment with his will. So we have disciplinary trials. The second kind of trials are developmental trials. You're walking in the will of God. You're doing what God expects. You're giving yourself to the plan of God. You are obedient, and trials still come in your life. But these trials are designed to develop and enhance you and take you to another level in your walk. They're not a sign that you've done something wrong. They're speaking to the fact that you're doing something right, and God still wants to increase you, and God wants to enlarge you. So now, the key word here. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Here it is. The key word is knowing. Knowing. See, you've got to come to a place of knowing that God is at work in the face of the trial. I said that God is doing something in the midst of the trial. So he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Okay, so I, we see something now. That God is doing something in the midst of the trial to develop us, to take us to another place, to enlarge the borders of our spiritual territory. 
And so if you can know that God is at work in the trial, you can see God in the trial and you can begin to celebrate because you know where it's coming from. Now that sounds great. We can, we can rejoice right now, right? But wait a minute. What happens when the trial actually touches your life? In that moment, uh, this, I'm thinking, think, uh, this, I, I act like I'm still in Bible study. That's what I'm going to do. No, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to know that nothing is sneaking up in your life on you without God being divinely aware and God positioning you to grow from it. Knowing, knowing, tell somebody knowing. <laughs> and ask them, do you know? He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That your faith is being tested. That we declare we have faith. Well, that faith is going to be tested. And that faith will test us. See, because as people of faith understand, faith requires us to stand in the face of obstacles. To believe God beyond what we see. To look beyond the circumstance and have an expectation that God will do all that he will do that work things together for our good. So knowing, knowing, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, right? To those who love God and called, are called according to his purpose. So we know. But the, the issue is, really, he's saying you ought to know. He's not saying you know. He's saying you ought to know. These are things we ought to know. But that's a part of the maturing process. We come to a place where we learn and begin to grasp and we grow in these revelations. So I gotta understand then that the problem ultimately is not a problem. The problem ultimately is an opportunity for a revelation of God. It's to see him in a way that I haven't seen him before and to recognize what he can do in a way I haven't known it before. So of the problem, the trial, is, is a point that God has created an opportunity. And so I am to celebrate the opportunity that God's bringing my way in the trial. Okay, you, you getting this? Because, see, this is stuff you can't fake. Because trials come our way. Difficulty comes away. Hardship comes away. You can't fake this. When things really happen, are you able to celebrate because you can say, God is doing something in this, and I'm looking beyond the trial, and I'm seeing God. The trial becomes translucent. The problem becomes transparent. I see God through it. Here he says, in verse 5, let's get there. Well, let me go back, verse 4 for a moment. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That you're going to see a word that appears in James over and over. It's the word perfect. Now, I know you've heard this term, nobody's perfect, right? But guess where God wants to take you? To perfection. So we act like that's not God's intent, 
So we live a life that says, always makes excuses for not pursuing spiritual development and, and perfection. But God is always taking us to a place of the perfect standard, the perfect will, the perfect timing of his plan for our lives. God is a God of perfection. And so he's taking us. So when we talk about that place of maturing, that place of perfection, he's really talking about maturing, coming into that full-grown man in the spirit, that full-grown woman in the spirit, that you come to a place where you can begin to live that life that represents God's heart without obstruction, with clarity, that you look like and sound like God in everything you do. So trials produce endurance. See, when you have a trial, it's like going against strong winds that are pushing against you. And if you have to begin to move and go forward against the strong winds, guess what? It's making you stronger. The resistance is making you stronger. God is engaged in the practice of resistance training in your life. So those trials are making you stronger. Now, how many know when you're in them, you don't feel like you're, getting, you're stronger, right? Sometimes you may even feel weaker because of the, <laughs> the, they're propelling, they're pushing you, seemingly pushing you back. But as you stand, stand firm, therefore, as you stand in the midst of the trials, as they're pushing you and you keep standing and you begin to step in the midst of the trial, what does stepping forward in the midst of trials look like? It means you don't stop. It means you continue to do what God called you to do, even in the midst of a trial. You don't let a trial sideline you. You don't let a trial take you out of purpose and calling. You don't let a trial cause you to now cut off yourself from the purpose of God, from the people of God, from the plan of God. You keep on walking. Why? Because we even in our prayer, we said this, the path of the righteous gets brighter and brighter. You got to keep walking, even in the midst of the trial, and you'll look back and you'll discover, I'm stronger you ever seen that happen? That you've gone through something, you say, I'm in a different place now. I, I've come to another point. I, I see God in a fresh way. I see that God has taken me through something, and I, I'm, I've gathered some stronger, some, some more muscles in the spirit. James. James says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all graciously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, he has just told us about the process of God in the enduring process of maturing us and developing us through these trials. He's walked us through this process. And now he begins to show us something. He begins to help us to see that in the midst of these trials that we have a need See, there are things that happen in our life that cannot be resolved with your, your preliminary education, with your undergrad, with your graduate degree, or your doctorate degree. You can be as intelligent as you think you are. And still there will be things you can't resolve. And so he's saying here in these situations, when you hit a, a trial that is overwhelming to you, you know what I'm talking about? Not just one that's whelming you, but overwhelming. You feel crushed by it. That in those moments, you, you can find yourself asking questions, what do I do next? And you can be intelligent, and you can have intelligent answers, but they're not the right answers. You need a connection with the wisdom of God 
on what to do. How many times have we made wrong decisions because we responded to the circumstance or our emotional decisions that only took us for a moment because emotions change? We need the wisdom of God. So he says here, but if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. When I ask God for wisdom, it brings me to a place of understanding that God possesses something I don't possess. That I have a finite perspective on all the things that are happening in my life. And God has an infinite perspective of my life. See, I can see today, right? I may have a vision of tomorrow, but I'm living in today. God can see everything. He knows and he could see me even before I was in my mother's womb, how I existed in his heart. He saw and knew me even before I could even have a perspective on things, that he sees my future when I don't know what's happening even tomorrow. Now, how many know you can have plans for tomorrow, but you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow? Right? God can see all of that. So we have a limited perspective, but God has a panoramic view of everything in our life. And so we have knowledge for the day, but God has wisdom for a lifetime. And if we're going to make it through these challenges, these difficulties, these things, we need to appeal to the wisdom of God. We need to ask. So if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men graciously and without reproach. God gives wisdom. God likes to give wisdom. I'm going to say this again. God likes to give wisdom to his people. Solomon, what do you want, Solomon? He says, wisdom. God says, that's great. God, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you more than wisdom. Because I delighted in the fact that you asked for wisdom. You want to get the heart of God delighted over your life? Ask God for wisdom. That's the ability to take your knowledge and submit it to his plan. That's the ability of God to come in and navigate your life in ways that you may think, wait a minute, is this right? But it allows God to take you and lead you and guide you. And if we're talking about really being led by the Spirit, the Spirit of God is going to lead us in the things of the wisdom of God. And God's going to take us places of understanding. So he says that if you lack wisdom, ask of God and understand this about God. That when you ask for wisdom, God is delighted to give it to you. And God will give it to you graciously. He'll just pour out wisdom on you. That's why I think we should pray for wisdom more than we pray for it. And that even in the face of the difficulty, when you feel like, oh, man, I don't know. I feel like I messed up. He says, when you ask for wisdom, God's not going to rebuke you. God says, no, I want you to have my wisdom. I want to download my wisdom into you. I want to give you wisdom. I want you to grow and develop and get to the place you need to go. So James is saying, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men graciously and without, without reproach. But he must ask God without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Uh, you're going to notice that James is very confrontational. He doesn't hold back. 
like uses words like unstable and double-minded. So James is saying here that when we ask God, we got to ask in faith. We've got to believe God. And so faith is so important. Faith is, is so important. The Bible says well, that everything we do has to be cloaked with faith. And whatever is not of faith is sin. We, we need to believe God. And so when we ask God, you can't really go and ask God for something and then not have faith to believe that he's going to do it. Right, then that's just repetitious prayers. That's just religiosity. That if you're praying, you've got to believe that God's going to do what he said. Or why pray? If you're praying and you don't believe, then you're double-minded. And you're unstable. It, it's like, and, and it, this happens within our context of our walk, and people do this all the time. And in, here James calls it unstable. It's unstable. It's double-minded to live a secular life as a Christian and then meet somebody and live a secular life in that dating relationship and then at the very moment you want to get married, then you want to get married in the church. That's double-minded. That, that's, that's trying to blend and connect two things. He says, now understand, you've got to believe God. You've got to believe God in everything. And see, the problem is not necessarily the absence of faith, but see, it's the presence of misdirected faith. Because if you don't believe God, you're believing something else. So you believe in it's not going to happen. You believe in God's not going to show up, that God's not going to do good things on your behalf, that God's not going to shower you with blessings, that God's not going to give you his wisdom. See, so you're putting your faith in what God won't do. But if you come to a place, Shane says, if you're really serious, you're going to ask God and you're going to believe God and you're not going to be unsettled and unstable and you're not going to be double-minded. Tell somebody, you are not double-minded and you're not unstable tell them, I, I mean seriously you're not unstable <laughs> amen here James helps us to see something as we look at this he says and he brings us into a place of people who are facing trials. And probably one of the most challenging areas of trials in our life is the trials we encounter around money. <laughs> Anybody ever had money trials? Anybody still has money trials? <laughs> the money we want, the money we don't have, the money we owe, the money, you know, money trials. And so these trials, James helps us to see, can manifest in one of two ways. And one is the area of the potential problem that can accompany poverty and financial instability. Number one, the potential problem that can accompany poverty or financial instability. The second one is the potential problem that can accompany prosperity and material affluence. And so James says here, he says in verse 9, but the brother of humble means or humble circumstance is to glory in his high position. 
and the rich man is the glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and wilters the grass and its flowers fall, fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fall or fade away. Wow. Here again, James is very direct. And James is helping us to see that in the midst of his culture and our culture, that money has been used to define us. The presence of money, the absence of money has been used to define us. We say a person's worth. What's a person's worth? It's based on their material possessions and the amount of wealth they possess. So that person, is, that person has a net worth of $20 million. Wow. Ask somebody, what is your net worth? Okay, now let's get clarity here. Because <laughs> this is what James is talking about. This has everything to do with how we deal with these trials that come our way, especially financial trials. He's saying here that the person of challenging financial circumstances, poverty, difficulty, it, struggling to pay bills, he says your posture in that trial is to glory to celebrate your high position. Wait a minute, your high position, not your low position. Because see, there's a tendency to equate who you are based on what you possess and based on how much money you have. But he said, no, 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 don't measure yourself by what you have in the bank or don't have in the bank or don't have at all. You measure yourself based on what God says about you. Your high position. Did you know the Bible says we are seated with him in heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power, we are seated with him. We are in high places, in heavenly places. And so understand then, when it comes to our value, our worth, what, what, what indeed is a good yardstick for our value? That when we look at our, our financial situation and we go, what is our value? What is our, what, how do we rate? What, what can be the good yardstick? Here's the yardstick for our value. Just look at the cross. What value did God place upon you? The death of his son. He valued you enough to have Jesus die for you. That's a net worth that is far beyond 20 million, 30 million, 100 million, 1 billion. You have a high position in Christ. Hallelujah. So he says, glory in your high position. As soon as you sit down, you pay your bills and go through your checkbook. When sadness tries to hit your heart, just say, wait a minute. What's my net worth? The cross. Priceless before God. Valuable before him. Then he says of the person who has means and wealth and riches, he says, now, you need to glory in your low position. In other words, there's a tendency for you to think you are all that based on what you have in your possessions. But you are not what you possess. And he says, understand, all that's going to fade away anyway. All that's coming to an end. 
You glory in the fact of your, of your low position that God has taken you, that you would not have been saved if it wasn't for grace. That you have no value except the fact that God stepped into your life. So you need to glory in the fact that you are now in the kingdom because of his love and his mercy. Don't let your money tell you that you are bigger than you, what, what you may believe you are. But then indeed come to a place of saying, wait a minute, I am what I am by the grace of God. That's why Paul says, Paul says, look, he says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance whether with abundance or scarcity. I've learned a secret. He says, I've come to no contentment because his identity was not based on what he possessed, but based on his relationship with God and the value that God put on him. How many know God values us? God celebrates us. God rejoices over us. Hallelujah. Okay. Hallelujah. <laughs> it is, I mean, get that in your spirit. Because you know what? Tell somebody, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tested. Especially when you see what somebody else has. And you begin to question where you are. That's when you need to glory in your high position. Because if you don't glory in your high position... You will go out and try to duplicate what somebody else has and get in trouble financially because you're trying to follow an image rather than living in a revelation. And you know what, you know what credit cards are, right? The right to pretend. <laughs> to pretend you are and you can do what you can't do. So here, James is helping us get perspective to come to a place. He says, now, if you're rich, glory in your low position. If you're financially challenged, glory in your high position. And there's going to be that scorching wind and things will come and all these challenges. And you'll see it won't be your money that will keep you. How many people we've seen in society that has wealth have affluence, have the ability to do things, whatever they want with finances, and their world still falls apart. Right? How, I mean, you would think if, if you're a multi-millionaire, you should be able to keep your marriage together. Right? If you, if you got all that kind of money, you should be able to be faithful to each other. If you got all that money, you shouldn't be still stealing more money. Money doesn't change character. It reveals character. So James says, blessed, look at this, verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Perseveres. Now, how do you, how do you persevere? You've got to go through something. Blessed is the man who perseveres. He's not just talking about that that man is just, you know, happy and everything. He's talking about that man comes to an assurance that he's walking in a realm of abundant life. He's he's experiencing the abundant life even in the midst of the trials. 
See, I think we have equated abundant life with stuff. But abundant life, abundant life is a revelation. It's a realization of what God has for us. It's to be made whole. I mean, to have peace is abundant life. Righteousness and joy is abundant life. The man who persecutes, blessed is the man who persecutes, uh, who perse- perseveres under trial because under circumstance and all these things that come because understand there's a crown laid up. Now, thank God for this life. And how many would say, this is a great life to have this life, right? I know there are difficulties in life and I know there are challenges in life, but aren't you glad to be alive? <laughs> if you're not, I want to pray for you after service. Seriously, I want to pray for you. But we are blessed to be in this life, to celebrate this life, to have this life. But there are challenges in this life. There are hardships in this life. There are financial challenges. There are physical challenges. There are relational challenges. There are a lot of things that happen in this life that serve to remind us of something, that there's more for us than this life. <laughs> Hallelujah. And that the passing trials and the sufferings that we face in this life cannot compare to the glory yet to come. That's why we persevere. That's why we continue to stand because we know there's something greater for us. We don't let this world shape us and mold us into this image. We come and we just keep standing and we keep walking and we keep moving in the plan of God because there's something greater than this life. We won't let circumstances redefine us. We won't let circumstances tell us who we are. We're going to keep on pressing forward. Why? Because there's something greater than what we've experienced in this life. God has something so wonderful for us, so great for us beyond this life. But, I mean, tell somebody, don't leave yet. God has a plan for you. God doesn't want you to leave yet. (laughs) that we are to maximize this time, but recognize there's a future for us. I want to read one more verse to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're there, say amen. Okay, you're in route. Verse 24. It says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air but I discipline my body, I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. What is he saying? He's saying, I understand something. There's something beyond just this life, but I make this life meaningful. I I fill it with purpose because I'm yielded to God. I'm not just going through the motions. 
I understand each trial is divinely significant. Hovering over me is the sovereignty of God, that God is doing something in every trial. Therefore, I got to keep on. I'm not just fighting a fight with the air. I'm not just boxing as if there's not a real opponent. I understand I'm in the midst of spiritual warfare, and everything I do is significant to get where I need to go. Hallelujah. That I am moving in the purpose and timing of God. I'm not just going through the religious activities and going through the motions. I have a purpose. And God's taken us somewhere. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Thank God for the book of James. Well, we're still in chapter one, but we're going to be moving forward. Would you stand with me? Thank you for listening to Pastor's Class. We hope you enjoyed this program. For more messages and Bible study teachings, please visit www.crossoverchurch.tv or give us a call at 301-927-5620. If you live in the D.C., Maryland, or Virginia area, come visit us at our home location, 5340 Baltimore Avenue, Hyattsville, Maryland, 20781. Pastor's Class is a weekly Bible study that occurs Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. at our home location. We would love for you to join us. May God bless you and guide you as you continue to study to show thyself approved in the grace of Christ Jesus.